0: The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. This morning's reading is in Numbers chapter 31, verses 1 through 12, and Numbers 32, 1 through 5. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Avenge the people of Israel on the Midianites. Afterward, you shall be gathered to your people. So Moses spoke to the people, saying, Arm men from among you for the war, that they may go against Midian to execute the Lord's vengeance on Midian. You shall send a thousand from each of the tribes of Israel to the war. So there were provided out of the thousands of Israel a thousand from each tribe, twelve thousand armed for war. And Moses sent them to war, a thousand from each tribe, together with Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest. With the vessels of the sanctuary and the trumpets for the alarm in his hand. They warred against Midian, as the Lord commanded Moses, and killed every male. They killed the kings of Midian with the rest of their slain: Evi, Rakim, Zur, Hur, and Reba, the five kings of Midian. And they also killed Balaam, the son of Beor, with the sword. And the people of Israel took captive the women of Midian and their little ones. And they took as plunder all their cattle, their flocks, and all their goods. All their cities and the places where they lived and all their encampments they burned with fire and took all the spoil and all the plunder, both of man and of beast. Then they, then they brought the captives and the plunder and the spoil to Moses and to Eleazar the priest and to the congregation of the people of Israel at the camp on the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. Now the people of Reuben and the people of Gad had a very great number of livestock. And they saw the land of Jazer and the land of Gilead, and behold, the place was a place for livestock. So the people of Gad and the people of Reuben came and said to Moses and to Eleazar the priest and to the chiefs of the congregation, Acheroth Dibon, Jazer, Nimrah, Heshbon, Elielah, Sebum, Nebo, and beyond, The land that the Lord struck down before the congregation of Israel is a land for livestock, and your servants have livestock. And they said, If we have found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants for a possession. Do not take us across the Jordan. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. Go ahead and have a seat. Well, as the saying goes, those who forget history are, are what? Bound to repeat it. Doomed to repeat it. And as, as, as Israel once again draws closer to the promised land, the events of four decades prior must have loomed large in their minds and in Moses' mind. You see, it was, it was then that God's people were on the cusp of entering into the promised land. Do you remember that? They were, they were so close, they could, they could see it. They were so close that, that they, could, they could almost taste it. But a bad report from spies sent ahead into the land to, to scope out the land and, and the people and its cities led to a rebellion. And the rest is history. As a result of their rebellion, Israel would remain in the wilderness for 40 years until an entire generation of Israelites, all those 20 uh, 20 years of age and older, until an entire generation had died and passed away. And now, here God's people are once again. And as this final kind of major act of leadership, the question is, will Moses be able to prepare the next generation of Israelites to learn from history and not repeat it? The question that we find ourselves asking now is, will the people of God finally enter into the promised land. And so, in our passage today, chapters 31 and 32, they, they capture two, two different episodes. Chapter 31 captures the Lord's war of vengeance against the Moabite Midianites. And in chapter 32, we see the tribes of Reuben and Gad, and ultimately half of the tribe of, of Manasseh, request to settle outside of the promised land. Now, since uh, we didn't read all of this, Evian didn't, we didn't ask her to, to read all of these two chapters, uh, we'd be here a while if that were the case. Let's go ahead and, and walk through each chapter in turn, and, and then we'll, we'll take a, a brief period of... Uh, so. We'll take some time to to look at the events as they unfold, and then we'll make some high-level application at the end of each of these chapters. And and as we do, uh, this is the main idea that I think we're going to see emerge from these chapters of Scripture, which have a lot of similarities, but also a lot of differences. And the main idea, the main thread is this, that God's people must be uncompromising in their rejection of sin and pursuit of unity. God's people must be uncompromising in their rejection of sin and their pursuit of unity as they chase after his promises. And so let's, let's dive into chapter 31. Now, before we do, there's some important context. We need to remind ourselves of because Numbers 31 takes us all the way back to where we left off a couple of weeks ago at the end of chapter 25 and, and is really a continuation of chapters 22 through 25. Do you remember what happened? Remember Balak the Moabite king who saw I don't know, the, the Israelites enjoying some, some success and victory in uh, other conflicts? sought the services of Balaam to put a curse on the Israelites. He he wanted to weaken this people that he saw as this kind of up-and-coming, strong power. And while we saw that the, the Lord wouldn't permit Balaam to curse his people, and it's interesting because what he actually does is turn the tables, causing Balaam to speak not words of curse over God's people, but instead... To speak words of blessing. You, you see, God's blessed people can't be cursed. Well, that brought us to chapter 25, which opened up in this way. And the juxtaposition between the end of 24 and the beginning of 25 is pretty striking. Chapter 25, verses 1 through 3, while Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people To the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. As a result of this, we even see that one Israelite man brings a Midianite woman caused by the daughter of the chief of Midian into Israel's camp and, and had sexual relations with her there. And as all of this unfolded, we see a plague beginning to make its way through the people of God, ultimately killing 24,000 Israelites until one man, one faithful man, Phinehas, the son of the high priest Eleazar, made atonement by killing the man of Israel and caused by piercing them both with one thrust of a spear. Chapter 25 ends with the Lord commanding Moses in this way. He says, Harass the Midianites and strike them down. For they have harassed you with their wiles, with which they beguiled you in the matter of Peor, in the matter of Kazbi, the daughter of the chief of Midian, their sister, who was killed on the day of the plague on account of Peor. And so this now brings us to chapter 31. And we have this command of the Lord to Moses ringing in the back of our, of our minds. Strike them down, he tells Moses. And so then, once again, chapter 31 opens in this way. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, avenge the people of Israel on the Midianites. What we open with here in chapter 31, the first 18 verses, is the war, God's war against the Midianites. It says, afterward you, you, will, you shall be gathered to your people. What, what the Lord is talking about here is he's, is he's giving instructions to Moses. It says, avenge the people of Israel on the Midianites. Afterwards you shall be gathered to your people. He's talking to Moses here about his death. This will be his final and a major duty as the leader, as God's chosen leader of his people. And so Moses spoke to the people, saying, Arm men from among you for the war, that they may go against Midian and execute the Lord's vengeance on Midian. You shall send a thousand from each of the tribes of Israel. To the war, And so this is exactly what they do. They gather 1,000 men from each of the 12 tribes, resulting in 12,000 soldiers in total. They're joined by Phinehas, once again, son of the high priest, who we're told brought vessels from the tabernacle. We're not told exactly what those vessels are, but we do know that some vessels from the tent were brought along with. Uh, he also brought... The silver trumpets from chapter 10, and they made war against the Midianites, and it was an absolute rout. We read that they killed every male, including the kings of Midian, including Balaam. And their cities and encampments were plundered and burned, women and children were taken captive. The captives and the spoils of war brought to Moses by the officers and his reaction is somewhat unexpected. You might expect after they go and have this successful campaign that they would bring uh, the plunder, the spoils of war and the captives and that Moses would say, well done. But what is his response? Instead, we see that Moses is angry. Moses said to them, Have you let all the women live? Behold, these, on Balaam's advice, cause the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. Now, therefore, kill every male among the little ones, and kill every woman who is known man by lying with him. But all the young girls who have not, known by, have not known man by lying with him, keep alive for yourselves. That's sobering words. Maybe hard words to hear, hard words to read. You see, the reason Moses is angry is because not only were the Midianite women guilty of the charge of idolatry themselves, but they were key participants in Balaam's plot to seduce the Israelites and lead them into idolatry as well. And that, that plot is, uh, Moses kind of sheds light on that plot here in this section of chapter 31. This plot of Balaam, the Midianites was, was a successful one. A successful one which ultimately led to the death of 24,000 of God's people. Now look, this, again, this, is, this may be difficult for us to read. But what we, we need to know as we read these words in the Bible is that the Lord takes sin especially idolatry, very, very seriously. Both the sin of idolatry as well as leading others into idolatry were were punishable by death. And so Moses ordered that all males, even young boys, were to be killed. This was probably to safeguard against the possibility of a rebellion or retaliation by future generations. And then he ordered that the women, all the women who had had sexual relations with a man be killed as well, and the rest of the women would be absorbed into the Israelite community. We'll come back to that in a bit, but the, the rest of chapter 31 anticipates the conquest of the promised land. And what we have, really, in the majority of chapter thirty-one, is God's people kind of dealing with all of the spoils of war. And what this does, what this will do for God's people, this is going, going to serve as a template of sorts for God's people and for the battles that will inevitably follow when they enter into uh, the, the the promised land and and begin the conquest. And so, in verses 19 through 24, we have instructions for purification from war. Both those who had fought in the war as warriors, but also for the plunder that was taken. Remember, back to chapter 19, because those who fought in the war would have come into contact with dead bodies, for example... They were rendered unclean and had to be purified with the water for purification, according to the instructions that were laid out in chapter 19. Everything that they, everything that they were gathering for, their, for themselves, all the plunder, all the livestock also would need to be purified, and so that is outlined through verse 24. Then in Verses 25 through 47, we have detailed instructions for the divvying out of and the division of the plunder. Half would go to the warriors who fought and half to the rest of the congregation. A portion of the warriors' plunder of their spoil would go to Eleazar, the high priest, as a contribution to the Lord. And a portion of the congregation, uh, of the congregation's share would go to the Levites who guard the tabernacle. And then that brings us to the, the final six verses where we read that the officers over the Israelite army, they, they bring forward an offering for the Lord, which included, honestly, some of the best of the goods. And this might have been motivated in part out of thanksgiving for the victory that the Lord had given them, Most commentators tend to to lean in this direction, that it it was likely due to the fact that the officers had taken a census of the people, something that was forbidden according to Exodus 30 and required them to pay a ransom for each of the men who was counted in order to prevent a plague from breaking out among them. But they, so, so they, they, they took this census, right? And, and they, they counted the men, the 12,000 who went into the war. And because of that, they, they bring this offering of atonement to the Lord. But the census revealed one very important detail that we absolutely shouldn't miss. And that detail is this that Israel didn't lose a man in battle, not a single life lost. Now this detail makes something very clear about Numbers chapter 31. It's really the the exclamation point on a point that I I think has been been made throughout the entire chapter, and that is this, that the war against the Midianites was a war waged not by the Israelites, but by the Lord himself. This was a, a religious war, a holy war in the purest sense of the word. And victory was given to Israel by God himself. You see, that the Israelite soldiers didn't fight for God so much as God fought for them. I mean, think about some of the details from the passage. The Lord commanded at the beginning of the passage the Israelites to make war and to, to execute whose vengeance? Their vengeance? No, his vengeance. And then... He sends a, a, relative, a, a relatively small number of troops from this ragtag bunch that's been wandering the desert for 40 years to get the job done. 12,000 troops. And then, do you notice there's, there's actually not that much information in chapter 31 about the battle at all? <laughs> We're only given a single name from the Israelites who was a part of the battle. And that wasn't some high-ranking officer or official or commander. It was Phinehas, the son of the high priest. And we're not told that he brought weapons or chariots or anything of that kind, but rather the silver trumpets from chapter 10 and vessels of the sanctuary. Now, we don't know exactly what those vessels were once again, but whatever they were, as commentator Adrian Reynolds points out, we are left in no doubt that this battle was spiritual in nature, not just physical. Another scholar, Gordon Wenham, comments in this way. He says, the participation of Phineas, son of Eleazar the high priest, shows that this is a holy war. This is God's war. This is not Israel's war. So then, what, what, can we, what can we learn from this war that the Lord wages, from this holy war, from this religious war? Well, to put it simply and, and as bluntly as possible, God hates sin. God hates sin. God hates idolatry. That's why the very first commandment given to His people at Sinai was a commandment against it. As the one true God, holy, all-knowing, all-powerful, everywhere present, sovereign, the maker and sustainer of all things, He won't settle for being one of many. He won't even be isn't even willing to to settle for being the king of a pantheistic hill. Being a, a big G God in a pantheon of little G gods. The prophet Isaiah records the Lord saying, I am the Lord and there is no other besides me. There is no God. Accordingly then, God's people must be uncompromising in their rejection of sin and idolatry. This is why Balaam's pr- plot was so wicked. This is why the entire Midianite, Moabite Midianite people, aside from the virgin women, was wiped out. Not only were they guilty of idolatry themselves, but they, they plotted to lead God's people away from their one true God into the arms of false gods. So the question that we should ask ourselves at this point is, what compromises have you made? What compromises might you be making with respect to sin in your life? Do you have the same sobering picture of the seriousness of sin and idolatry that we have laid out for us in chapter 31? Does, does your life reflect the same zeal for the holiness of God as we see laid out here? What what? What compromises might you, might I, might we be making with respect to sin in our lives? How how might we be tolerating sin? I wonder, how might you be making peace with it? That's what we do sometimes. We just kind of let it hang around. We, We make peace with it. We dress it up. We carry it around with us instead of putting it to death, instead of wiping it out completely. Now, of course, this is a different time in a specific set of circumstances. And so we're not talking about making war against other people, against other nations, against our neighbors. But we are t- talking about making war against sin how might you be putting yourself in the path of temptation how might you have begun to give yourself to the sin of idolatry taking uh, looking at something or someone to give you what only god can maybe it's money or sex or career or marriage or family Security, comfort, control. Ligon Duncan observes that God is calling the Israelites here to a pursuit of holiness that involves what he calls, quote, a ruthless dealing with the source and occasion of sin. A ruthless dealing with the source and occasion of of sin and so church what, what might a ruthless dealing with the source and occasion of sin look like for you It's time to take up arms It's time to make war against the sin in your life and in, uh, and against the sin. And, And as you do, remember this, that the Lord leads you into battle against sin and idolatry just like he led his people into battle in Numbers 21. And just like he armed them, he's armed you. And he goes with you. And he gives you strength for the battle. And he will give you victory just like he gave them victory. And so in light of that truth, we fight. In light of that truth, We make war. In light of that truth, we must fight. Look, the the Israelites, despite the fact that the Lord obviously went out ahead of them and, and, and fought for them, the Israelites still had to go to war. They still had to fight the battles. And that's true of us as well. We can't take credit for the victory. They couldn't take credit for the victory. The victory wasn't theirs, and and yet, they still had to fight. And look, I I know, because I talk with so many of you, I I know you're you're smack dab in the middle of the war right now. You're in the middle of the battle right now. You, You wanna make war feels like you're trying to make war. And yet still, it, it feels like you're losing. It feels like a losing battle. You find yourself losing hope. But unlike Israel, it feels like you've, you've taken some losses along the way. Church, be assured of this. The same God that led his people in a shutout victory over the Midianites... Leads you into battle as well. The same God who raised Jesus from the dead leads you into battle today. He goes with you. Because He fights for you, you can fight. Because He fights for you, you can take up arms. Because He fights for you, you can fight a winning battle. Because look, we know how this ends. If we turn our Bibles all the way back to the final book, the book of Revelation, we see that just like Israel in Numbers 31, the Lord will perfectly judge those who opposed him and, who oppose Him and His people. And He will give total victory over sin and death, wiping them out completely. And not a man, not a woman, not a single one who belongs to Him, church, will be lost. That's where we're headed. That is our destiny. And so it's with this hope, with this assurance, that we get to take up arms and make war against sin in our lives. That brings us now to to chapter 32. 32. The victory over the Midianites and the division of the spoils of war gives way to chapter 32, where we read that the people of Reuben and the people of Gad had a very great number of livestock. And they saw that the land of Jazer and the land of Gilead, and behold, the place was a place for livestock. Now, the, the reason that these, these two tribes had such a great number of livestock probably had something to do with the previous chapter, don't you think? I mean, maybe, maybe they had quite a, few, uh, uh, quite a few head of cattle and, and, and so on and so forth before then, uh, but livestock was, was a part of the plunder, was a part of the spoils of war. And so, with their newfound riches... They have observed that the recently conquered land outside the promised land is actually pretty good, pretty good land. Especially good for raising livestock. And so the wheels begin to turn. It's, it's interesting, we, we see that they, they see this land and they, they, they see that it is good. It kind of brings to mind uh, the temptation in the garden back in Genesis three, doesn't it? It's good, especially good for raising livestock. And so, what do they do? They they go to Moses and Eleazar and they make a request, saying, "If we have found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants for a possession. Do not take us across the Jordan right now. We have." Two tribes from the people of God who have just been wandering through the desert for 40 years, waiting for, longing for, yearning for entrance into the promised land, going to Moses and Eleazar, asking them, Please, Moses, oh please, do not now take us into the promised land. So for nearly four decades now, God's people, they've been wandering waiting for this land flowing with milk and honey and settle there, receiving their inheritance. And now we have Gad and Reuben. And so in verses 6 through 15, we see Moses' response. Now in chapter 31, we we saw a group similarly approach Moses, didn't we? This this time it was the, the officers in the army. We have a group approach Moses, and Moses responded in anger. This time, the exact same thing, the exact same pattern unfolds and repeats itself. We have a group, the tribes of Gad and Reuben, approach Moses, and he responds in anger. And it's worth reading Moses' response in full. But Moses said to the people of Gad and to the people of Reuben, Shall your brothers go to the war while you sit here? They're preparing for war. Remember, this was the whole point of the census from the very beginning. They're counting the men who are available to be troops in this war. Why will you discourage the heart of the people of Israel from going over into the land that the Lord has given them? Your fathers did this when I sent them from Kadesh Barnea to see the land. He's recalling, Moses is, chapters 13 and 14. And the whole episode with the spies and the bad report and the rebellion. Remember, that ended badly. For they went up to the valley of Eschil and saw the land, they discouraged the heart of the people of Israel from going into the land that the Lord had given them. And the Lord's anger was kindled on that day, and he swore, saying, surely none of the men who came up out of Egypt from 20 years old and upward shall see the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, because they have not wholly followed me. None except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and, uh, the, the Kenizzite, and Joshua, the son of Nun, for they have wholly followed me. The Lord, And the Lord's was, anger was kindled against Israel and he made them wander in the wilderness 40 years until all the generation that had done evil in the sight of the Lord was gone. And behold, you have risen in your father's place, a brood of sinful men to increase still more the fierce anger of the Lord against Israel. For if you turn away from following him, he will again abandon them in the wilderness. And you, not he, you will destroy all this people. Moses' concern here is a concern for Israelite as a whole. And he knows what happened the last time they were on the cusp of entering into the promised land and the spies brought back the bad report about the people and the the cities in it. He knows that the people responded in fear, not faith. He knows that it resulted in a rebellion. He remembers that they were ready to put to death their leaders and find new leaders to lead them back to Egypt. It was that episode, again, recorded in chapters 13 and 14 that resulted in Israel wandering the desert for 40 years. It was that episode that led to that entire adult generation dying in the wilderness instead of entering themselves into the promised land. And now Moses, his concern is that history might once again repeat itself. You see, the the short-sighted request of a few has put God's people as a whole in jeopardy, in danger. They were sowing seeds of disunity in church. The consequences of this disunity might result in the wiping out of an entire people. You remember, that was what they were facing back in chapter 14. The Lord was ready to wipe them all out and start over again. And so... Gad and Reuben go back to the drawing board. They amend their request. They offer to leave their livestock and their families behind in this land, in this Transjordan region outside the Promised Land, while they take up arms with the rest of the tribes of Israel in their conquest of the Holy Land, of, of, of the Promised Land. Once the conquest is finished, they say, they'll return to their land to the east, Moses responds again. This time, he's more agreeable. He says to them, if you will do this, if you will take up arms and go before the Lord for the war, and every armed man of you will pass over the Jordan before the Lord until he has driven out his enemies from before them, and the land is subdued before the Lord, then after that you shall return and be free of your obligation to the Lord and to Israel. And this land shall be your possession before the Lord. But he has a warning. If you will not do so, behold, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. The rest of the chapter captures the details of these arrangements. Moses goes and tells Eleazar, who, who needs to be informed of all of these things, since, remember, Moses, he's not making the trek into the promised land, and so he has to pass this information along. We also learn here that half of the tribe, half of, the tribe of Manasseh would actually like to join Gad and Reuben outside the promised land serving as a, a bridge of sorts between God's people outside the land and God's people inside the land. We have this, this one tribe, Manasseh, which is split between these two groups. But suffice it to say, while Moses managed to kind of hold things together, cracks are broken. Beginning to show in the foundation of the unity of God's people. Wouldn't you agree? But maybe, just maybe, there's a chance they're going to be able to, to maintain it, to keep this thing together. Now, I think the observation that we can make for ourselves, the application we make for ourselves here, is as, as simple as it, it was back in chapter 31 where we learn that God hates sin and is inviting us, commanding us, even leading us uh, to make war against it, here we learn that God also hates disunity and that God's people must be uncompromising in their pursuit of unity. It's not just true for God's Old Testament people as they prepared to enter into the promised land, but it's, it's true for us as well as modern day Christians. As the church, we are called to, pers- to, to be uncompromising in the pursuit of unity, our unity together. Or, or rather, we are called to walk in the unity that is already ours in Christ. Listen to these words from uh, uh, the book of Ephesians. The apostle Paul writes, I therefore a prisoner for the lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called and the question now is like what is this manner what is this manner that, that is worthy what, what is he talking about here? Is he calling the, the Ephesians to make war against sin? Is, is that what he's talking about here? No, he's, he's writing specifically about unity in the body. Walking a manner worthy of our calling, to, to walk in a manner worthy of our calling is, is to walk in unity together. He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, In the bond of peace, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So this morning, we we should be asking ourselves, how might... How might I be making peace with with sin in our lives? How might I be compromising there? Yes, but but also in, in what ways might we be tolerating disunity in our body? In what ways might we be tolerating disunity in our gospel communities? In what way might we be tolerating disunity in our midst? I'll tell you one way we do this is we avoid conflict. We avoid conflict. Why? Because conflict is... Is 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 difficult and it's messy and it's un it's uncomfortable. And so instead of going to that brother or that sister who sinned against you, who hurt you in, in some way, instead of seeking out reconciliation and, and restoration of relationship, we just kind of move on. I mean, look at all the people who are here. I'll just find different friends. Maybe I'll join a different gospel community. Maybe I'll just try to sweep it under the rug and pretend like everything is just fine and like, like it never happened. And then what, what does happen? Well, the, the, the seeds of... A bitterness begin to take root, and in avoiding conflict, so often we are sowing seeds of disunity. Cracks begin to show. Our our unity is at stake here. And look, uh, the pursuit of unity is is a messy endeavor. It's. It's a messy endeavor. An uncompromise, listen to this, an uncompromising pursuit of unity sometimes requires compromise. And Moses shows us that here in this passage. An uncompromising pursuit of unity, some require, sometimes requires compromise. That's because people are messy. People are sinful. That means an uncompromising pursuit of unity is going to be messy. It's going to require compromise. It's going to be imperfect. Isn't it messy and imperfect in our, 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 our passage here today in chapter 32? I don't know if you notice that, but there's, there's all kinds of tension in chapter 32 that I didn't actually notice in chapter 31. There's, there's so much that's left unsaid. In chapter 31, for example, we read these words. The Lord spoke to Moses. And then the Lord spoke to Moses. Very clear, black and white. Verse 21 of chapter 31. This is the statute of the law that the Lord commanded Moses. Verse 25, the Lord said to Moses. Three times we read that Moses did something, quote, as the Lord commanded Moses. Very clear, very definitive. You know what's absent from chapter 32? Any direct quote of the Lord. Any direct hearing of the voice of the Lord. No direct words or commands or instructions to Moses about how to handle the situation. It doesn't mean a conversation didn't happen between Moses and the Lord, but the all-sufficient word of God doesn't give it to us. No definitive judgments about the request that was made by Gad and Reuben. Like setting aside the potential harm to the congregation for a moment. Was it sinful for Gad and Reuben to request land for an inheritance outside the promised land? It seems like it would be, but it's never directly addressed. Nothing said about the arrangement that was made between the two and a half tribes and Moses? Was, was this in that positive? Was this in that negative? Like, was, Did Moses walk away thinking to himself, crushed it? Like that was a good deal. Or was he walking away feeling discouraged? I, I, I don't know. I mean, we can gather hints from the text, but it's not here explicitly. We, we only read this in verse 31. And the people of Gad and the people of Reuben answered what the Lord has said to your servants. We will do. What the Lord has said to your servants, we will do. And so they trust that Moses, as a servant of God, as a mouthpiece for God, as a mediator between God and his people, they trust in his leading, they make appropriate compromises, and they pursue unity together for the good of the whole. You know, as as God's people sit here, on the edge of the promised land once again. Preparing to enter the promised land once again, on the heels of their victory over the Midianites, in chapter 31, and on the cusp of their conquest of of the land that the Lord has has promised them. I I think something that God's people must be wondering is this what makes us any different from any of these people? I wonder what makes us, what makes us different from the Midianites. Or, or, or maybe, maybe that's a question that you're asking right now. What makes Israel different from the Midianites? What, what makes Israel different than the, the pagan tribes that they're about to be led in conquest over in the promised land? And the answer, brothers and sisters, is is honestly not much. There's not much different at all. Remember, again, back in chapter 14, uh, the Lord's people faced the the possibility of extinction at the hands of the Lord for their idolatry. Back in Exodus chapter 32, remember the, the episode of the golden calf? the Lord, once again, was about to wipe out his entire people and start over with Moses. You know what the difference is between God's people on the edge of the promised land and all of these other peoples? The mediator. God's people, they they had a mediator who pled their case before a holy God. They were Fully deserving of the same fate as the Midianites. And that, that's true of us here today. We, we are fully deserving of the same face, of, of the same fate as the Midianites, because of, of, of our sinfulness, because of our own idolatry. But before God, we have a mediator, the man, Jesus Christ who quench God's wrath for our sin on our behalf, who mediates right relationship between us and between him, and he's leading us now as his people into the promised land. And so, church, we, we must be uncompromising in our rejection of sin and our pursuit of unity on that journey. But rest assured this, we... we we have to do those things with complete humility because the only thing that sets us apart is him. It's not that you're special or that I am. It's not because of your righteousness or mine, but because of his and his alone. Let's pray. Father, uh, Lord, uh, we, we confess that we are a people who at times make peace with sin and sow seeds of disunity. Lord, we confess that, that at times we, we compromise in these ways. And so we, we come before you now and, and plead for your, your mercy and your grace. And we thank you for the forgiveness that we have in Jesus. We thank you that he is our mediator even right now. He's interceding on our behalf right now, pleading our case right now. Thank you, Lord, for the, for the forgiveness that is ours in him. And thank you, Lord, that your spirit lives in us now, empowering us in our journey through the wilderness. Lord, as, as, we, as we make this journey to the promised land of the new heavens and the new earth, Lord, may we be uncompromising in our fight against sin and our pursuit of unity. We pray these things in his name, amen.
0: Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.